Ooh, podcast family, we've got an interesting topic today. You see, not long ago, actually just a few days ago, one of our podcast family members, Elise, sent me this question through our Facebook app. And the question was, hey, Dr. Shop, a quick, quick question for you. We've got patients, of course, on metformin because of PCOS, mainly because of infertility or just for control of the metabolic syndrome. And then they get pregnant. Well, here's the question. Well, what do you do with them? In other words, do you stop the metformin immediately? Do you continue the metformin, say, until the end of the first trimester? Or do you continue metformin all throughout the pregnancy? What does the data show? And after communicating back and forth, of course, through Messenger, I finally got in contact uh, with one of the authors of a brand new guidance, brand new guideline that's coming out formally in print sometime at the end of this month. It already came out as in the head of print, an article in press, and it's making its way through a triple publication project, all right? In other words, it's coming out in Fertility and Sterility. It's coming out in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And the third journal where this is appearing is the European Journal of Endocrinology and Human Reproduction. The title of this new guidance is Recommendations from the 2023 International Evidence-Based Guideline for the Assessment and Management of Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. It's a great review of things that we've already known, but also answers some things that had been left dangling from previous guidelines. The last time that ASRM did this review was in 2018. Now, in this new guidance, it does actually mention inositol. So you got to go back to that uh, podcast episode where we mentioned myo-inositol for PCOS. And even though that's not the, the purpose of this episode, let me just give you that little uh, snippet there. Yes, it's part of shared decision making. But in that previous episode, we said, why is inositol not being talked about in these publications and guidance with PCOS? Well, now it is. Now, just to tell you how fresh this is, this just got drafted in mid-August 2023. And again, it's an article in print. So it's released ahead of publication. And it's going to come out in those three different journals. And I got this from ASRM uh, where, that will be releasing this formally in print, infertility and sterility. But as it relates to this question about what to do with patients who are on metformin preconception and then get pregnant. And again, those are the three options, right? Stopping the medication immediately with a positive pregnancy test, continuing through the first trimester or continuing all throughout pregnancy. That's the question. Now, we're going to get to all of this data, and ASRM does have a very quick, just little, a, a, a few sentences on this that are very high yield, and of course, we're going to summarize that in this episode. But but why is this even a conundrum, right? Well, what's the dilemma here? Well, number one, remember that patients with PCOS who get pregnant do have a higher risk of certain obstetrical complications. We're going to address that in this episode. So it would seem, well, great, if they're at risk of certain complications, give them medication to help prevent that. I get that. But the flip side of that, because nothing is free, right, is the potential exposure to the child of medication that may not be necessary because metformin does pass from the placenta to the fetal compartment. So that's the balancing act. So what's the short of it? Should we continue metformin all throughout pregnancy? Should we continue it past the first trimester? Or should we stop it immediately at a positive pregnancy test? That's the focus of this episode. So let's get to all that data right now.
Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're wondering if there's any huge whopping changes to the diagnosis of PCOS based on this new 2023 guidance, the answer is no. It has to do more with management. And again, nothing really groundbreaking in there, stuff that we've already done, uh, the stuff that we've already known and covered in, in this podcast on various episodes. Um, but really, the, the, the main issue here does involve metformin because it does state that metformin use in adults uh, should be considered in patients with PCOS more for the metabolic syndrome and, and the reversing of those uh, complications associated with that condition, okay? So while it does address metformin for infertility, obviously, uh, it, outside of infertility, metformin in PCOS adults, and that's the catch, is in adults, definitely has a role uh, to try to reverse some of those um, um, PCOS metabolic issues. And it also reminds us in this guidance that irregular periods is, is a tricky thing, right? Because every patient is different. And having irregular periods in the first year post-menarche, that is normal, right? So that's defined as, hey, normal post-pubertal transition, leave that alone. And between the first and the third year after menarche, ASRM reminds us that it's okay to have a cycle uh, even about every 21 to every 45 days. But three years after menarche, remember that by the third post-menarchal year, that's when a gynecological pattern is really set. So three years after menarche, a typical what's called quote unquote normal cycle, because everyone's different, is a cycle that happens uh, every 21 days or up to 35 days, but cycles that happen more frequently than every 21 or later than 35 days after the third year after menarche, then that's just kind of them, right? Then that's kind of uh, the, the way that their system works. Maybe they're anovulatory, but it does say that that, you know, be very cautious in making the diagnosis of PCOS right off the bat in, in adolescence because sometimes there's a lot of factors that go into that, you know, stress, developing a body, uh, weight changes. So it's just to be more cautious before you label a 14-year-old as PCOS, uh, give it time to, to declare itself and you could call them, quote, at increased risk, end quote, and then see what they do because full reproductive maturity, according to ASRM, is eight years after menarche. All right, so the first year after menarche, yes, it's totally wacky. That's totally normal. Not everyone is, but the majority of young women are. And then between one and three years, it's okay to have a cycle about every 21 to every 45 days. And then three years after menarche, the typical menstrual pattern is set as occurring about every 21 or every 35 days. Uh, but the full maturity of the reproductive cycle is not until eight years after menarche. So it's uh, you've got time. So it's all right to put on the brakes, to pump the brakes a little bit in young adolescents before we slap them with a diagnosis. Let it take its time uh, until full reproductive maturity in those cases that are that are suspicious but not quite confirmed. 
In this bulletin, as it relates to pregnancy, ASRM does favor early diabetic screening in these patients because of the insulin resistance. And ACOG, remember, also says that if they have a certain BMI and another risk factor like PCOS, then early diabetic screening can be done. And if it's normal, repeat it at the normal time. Remember, we've got an episode on just the reverse, which is, hey, you can find it early. That's fine. But does it really change obstetrical outcome? That is more debatable with most of the studies saying, yeah, you found it early. Congrats. It doesn't really change anything. So that's a little controversial, but early screening for gestational diabetes, according to ASRM, in PCOS patients who become pregnant uh, is definitely something that should be considered. Man, we really have just learned so much from the Stein-Leventhal syndrome, right? now called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I trained with polycystic ovarian disease. It was PCOD, and then I went to PCOS because the truth is this really is a syndrome. It is a clinical condition that isn't just a gynecology issue, right? It's not just hirsutism and irregular cycles and infertility, but we know that this actually has obstetrical implications. Isn't that interesting? Because you always think of things like, oh, in gynecology or things in obstetrics, but we know that there's a lot of, of tie-in and, and a lot of gray area between them. Remember, there's also data that pregnancies with endometriosis or even at risk for things like gestational uh, hypertension uh, or gestational diabetes and preterm labor because of the pro-inflammatory condition that endometriosis causes. So endometriosis, we always kind of put into this box of infertility and gynecology, but there is also data to, to as it bleeds over into obstetrics. And it's the exact same thing here with PCOS. Well, I guess since I mentioned endometriosis, even though we're not really focusing on that at all, I guess I should give you that reference, right? And and there's been several publications, but one of the biggest, more national kind of population-based studies was back in 2016 that was published in BJOG. um, And the title is Pregnancy Outcomes in Women with Endometriosis, a National Record Linkage Study. And, and that was pretty surprising that even after multivariate analysis, after you control for age and parity and socioeconomic status, that just having endometriosis by itself did increase the risk of several pregnancy complications, including miscarriage, obviously ectopic pregnancy, if there's implants on the tubes that affect tubal motility. It's also been associated in this national cohort study with placenta previa, unexplained endopartum hemorrhage, postpartum hemorrhage, preterm birth, uh, and other publications have shown things like uh, gestational hypertension and gestational diabetes, all to make the point that gynecology diagnoses are great because then you can do something about it, but they do bleed in to obstetrics. This 2023 PCOS management guideline update does cover pregnancy outcomes in women with PCOS. Now, this is no surprise. We've known this for a long time, but it's a nice narrative summary of what to expect with PCOS pregnancy. So, you know, some women with PCOS struggle with infertility and then they get pregnant and we kind of leave PCOS at the door. Like, well, that's over. I mean, now you're pregnant. Now we just focus on obstetrics. But remember that there are these implications that are brought over into that. So ASRM does remind us that women with PCOS do have 
have higher risk pregnancies compared to women without the condition. And some of the conditions that are at higher frequency, higher prevalence in PCOS patients includes miscarriage rates, gestational diabetes, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Some studies have shown an increased rate of intrauterine growth restriction or just SGA babies. There's also been a link with preterm delivery and higher gestational weight gain. Now, obviously, the best would be that preconceptually women get weight under control. If they have undiagnosed diabetes as part of the condition, that that's addressed. If they have any other endocrinopathy like thyroid abnormalities, that that's put in check. So ideally, of course, if there's already a known diagnosis of PCOS, that they maximize preconception care, which would greatly reduce some of these factors just in and of itself, right? So if a patient has a BMI of 35 with PCOS, but they're able to bring that down to under 30, then things like gestational diabetes and hypertensive disorders in pregnancy just by itself will go down. So there's a lot of factors here in play, but as a category, PCOS does cause uh, or does lead to a higher relative risk of those specific issues in pregnancy. Again, miscarriage, higher gestational weight gain, gestational diabetes, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, uh, FGR or small for gestational age babies, preterm delivery, and in some articles, not all, a higher risk of cesarean section. Of course, that probably goes with the other factors we've just discussed, but it has been pulled out as an independent factor that's higher uh, frequency in PCOS patients compared to non-PCOS patients. So if lifestyle modification and those factors aren't that successful or just not done, that's where this idea comes in of can some medications known to help revert the metabolic syndrome of PCOS, can they have a beneficial role in pregnancy? All right, remember, that's balancing the potential uh, pregnancy slash maternal issues against a potential fetal exposure or fetal harm. Now, we got two things here when we talk about fetal issues, and we're going to knock this out right off the bat. Number one is, is this teratogenic in the first trimester? The simple answer, super easy, is no. We've got plenty of data that has covered that and has shown that. And one of those publications was just recently in in 2023, earlier at the start of this year. That was in January 2023 in BMJ. And I'm going to give you that reference here in just a minute, okay? So no, it's not teratogenic. But the second factor when we talk about fetal exposure to any medication is, while it may not be teratogenic, does this have any implications postnatally, in other words, in early childhood or, or, or early adulthood or at some adolescence. In other words, are we, are we exposing them for later issues by imprinting or epigenetic changes, all right? Now, that's, a, that's something that's relatively new here, and there's a publication that's, that's why it's pumping the brakes on just give everybody metformin with PCOS and pregnancy, uh, because of, of something that we're going to discuss here that's been found in children at four years of age who had continuous metformin exposure in pregnancy. So let me just clarify this for a minute. We're talking about metformin, not for GDM. So when it started, you know, at 24 to 28 weeks because they have GDM, that's different. That's not what we're talking about here. So I want everybody to make sure that, you know, I'm not, I don't want to freak anybody out. Oh my goodness, metformin somehow imprints children uh, at age four with something that we haven't even discussed yet. But we will. That's not the case. That is different. We're talking about children exposed to metformin from conception all through the first, all through the second, and all the way until delivery. So continuous exposure throughout pregnancy. 
Okay, so again, to put this this episode into perspective, what we're talking about here is the continuation of metformin from conception onward versus using metformin to treat GDM. That's totally legit, and that's not what we're talking about here. So the two factors are, does metformin use continually throughout pregnancy uh, increase malformation risk? That answer is no. And the last uh, publication that came out of that was January 2023. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis in BMJ. And then the second is, could it potentially imprint children Uh, with one issue, metabolic issue at age four. And I'm going to tell you that in just a minute. That came out of the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And that came out recently, but not recently like last year. That data came out in 2018. And ASRM does mention that in this 2023 new guidance, okay? So we've known this now for, what is that, four to five years, that potentially there's this imprinting with chronic sustained exposure to metformin and this one issue here at age four for children. But remember, there's an, that's an association. It does not prove causation. And I'm going to get to that in a minute after we tackle this issue on malformations. All right, let's tackle the first potential fetal issue, which is does it give children a third or fourth eyeball? The answer is no. Thankfully, so we can walk everybody off the fence of fear that at least it's not a known teratogen. And we've known that for a long, long time. But the last systematic review and meta-analysis that was published was in BMJ, and it came out January 2023. The first author is Abal Hassani. And I'll post this link, of course, in our reference list. This took a look at randomized control trials and observational cohort studies that had a control group in them looking at MCM, all right? That's major congenital malformations. And this was in PCOS patients who had pregestational diabetes so that had to be controlled for already in terms of the analysis or patients who just had PCOS and metformin and continued the medication through organogenesis. Well, let's just get right to it. It seems to be totally safe, all right? So as the authors concluded in this systematic review and meta-analysis, quote, metformin use in first trimester pregnancy in women with PCOS or pregestational diabetes does not meaningfully increase the MCM risk overall. That's major congenital malformations. The teratogenicity question or concern has been put to bed for over 20 years. Take a look at this first study that came out through ASRM in Fertility and Sterility, January 2021. So exactly 22 years from this 2023 publication, the Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, listen to the title of this publication. Look how fast things move. You're like, well, it's 20 years. Is, is that fast? I don't know, I guess. I mean, to go from a pilot study, which was published in Fertility and Sterility January 2001, to now have a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2023, like, yep, it's totally validated, at least for the fear of malformations, is not a concern. But in Fertility and Sterility in January of 2001, they first published this pilot study, and it's in the title. It's a pilot study of continuing metformin throughout pregnancy in women with PCOS to see if it could reduce first trimester spontaneous abortions. Let's stop there for a minute, okay? So this was continuing metformin. This is women with PCOS who got pregnant on it, continued it throughout the first trimester to see if it could reduce spontaneous abortion. And they also looked at teratogenicity. 
So this was a small number study. This was only 22 patients with documented diagnosed PCOS and, and who got pregnant with the medication and then continued it forward, all right? And what they found was, number one, no, no major concerns or, or signals there for teratogenicity. Of course, that's now been validated, as we mentioned, now 22 years later. But what they, what they also found that was super interesting was that metformin seemed to reduce the rate of first trimester miscarriage. Now, this is something that ASRM does talk about in this new update. So let, let's stick here with miscarriage issues first. Does metformin, it continued on in the first trimester, seem to reduce spontaneous miscarriage rate? The answer is yes but it doesn't do anything for later miscarriages, right? So miscarriages after 14 weeks of gestation. So there is data, and it's interesting what ASR, ASRM says about this, and I'll tell you that in a minute in this new guidance, but there is, there is data, and it's not just this pilot study from 2021. There's been a series of publications that has shown that continuing metformin at least just in the first trimester and then stopping it seems to reduce an overall higher prevalence of spontaneous miscarriage carriage that women with PCOS seem to have. If we leave that pilot study in 2001 and then jump forward 10 years or a decade later to September 2011, there is a a non-randomized, but it is a prospective controlled clinical trial that looked at continuing metformin in pregnancy in women with PCOS, looking at two main outcomes here, gestational diabetes in those with PCOS who continued the med or who stopped it, and that same topic of spontaneous miscarriage. And according to this, again, non-randomized, but it was a prospective controlled trial in all women with PCOS, they found that the incidence of gestational diabetes was significantly lower at 3.2% in those who continued the medication versus 23% in those who stopped it. All right, now this was continuing the medication all throughout pregnancy, not just in the first trimester. And, and the other significant finding, as that pilot study in 2001 showed, is that there was a spontaneous miscarriage rate in the medication group of 3.2%. But for those who stopped the medication, it went up to 26.9%. So th- this issue of spontaneous AB seems to be a recurrent theme. We get that. That's kind of not questioned. What is questioned, though, is is the the effect of metformin continued throughout pregnancy to adequately prevent gestational diabetes. This is one study, but again, not randomized. And ASRM has something to say about that, and I'll tell you what that is in a minute. So we've talked about teratogenicity. Um, we've talked about spontaneous AB uh, outcomes in women who continue it, which seems to be a benefit. It does seem to reduce spontaneous abortion if you continue the medication through the first trimester. But, but because we said nothing is free, remember the second fetal concern that we're talking about, right? And that's the potential for imprinting the child for some potential adverse issue down the road. And there is some data that because of epigenetic changes, sustained exposure of metformin to the child in utero could potentially pop up something at age four, all right, at four years of age. And that is their BMI. That's their their overall body weight. And that's one thing that is a concern. And remember, these have always been associations. It doesn't prove causation. But let me give you that data now about the potential for imprinting the child if the medication is continued all throughout gestation. Mm-hmm. 
many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's fast forward to 2018, taking a look at the potential effect of continuing medication from conception all throughout delivery. Remember, this is not to those patients who get metformin for GDM, to be very clear, as I'm reading the, the study right here. This is patients who use metformin anywhere from 1,700 to 2,000 milligrams a day from the first trimester until delivery, okay? And this was the summary of two RCTs that that followed the women drop pregnancy and then looked at those outcomes and then followed the children to age four, all right? So this is combining data from two RCTs looking at children's outcome at the age of four. This was published in the journal Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, April 2018. Before we give you that result, see, here's the area of caution, okay? So as remember, remember, we've got three options here in patients with PCOS, on metformin who get pregnant. Stop it immediately. There's no reason to do that. I I don't do that myself. I do the second option, which is continue until the first trimester because even though the data isn't like great in every study, there is some, the burden of evidence does show that uh, it could potentially decrease spontaneous AB use. Remember our old adage, right? Can it help? Yes. Uh, Is it potentially harmful? No, because it's not transgenic, and you're going to stop it at the end of the first trimester. What we're talking about here is continuing the medication all throughout pregnancy. So that's a different issue, all right? So can it help, and is it hurtful? Uh, Those are still showing the benefit. Both of those answers show benefit to continuing the medication in the first trimester. That's what I do, and then I stop at around 12 to 14 weeks. Or the third option, which is continuing all throughout pregnancy, that seems to have the least data, Okay. Well, let me be be clear. There is data. It's just not very clear or strong data. And that's what ASRM says. And I'm going to give you their summary in just a minute. So between stopping it immediately, which you're definitely fine to do, uh, it seems unnecessary. Option two is continuing until the first trimester is basically over. And the third is continuing, which is the least, uh, seems to be the less likely to be helpful and potentially could increase this issue at children by age four. Short of it is, it had to do with their weight, right? So in those that had continuous exposure, and after controlling for a lot of other variables, uh, the the amount of children who were exposed to metformin all throughout pregnancy had a uh, overall body weight and BMI at age four that was significantly greater than those who did not have continuous exposure. So the authors concluded, quote, metformin exposed children had higher BMI and increased prevalence of being overweight or obese at age four, end quote. And of course, the reasoning is that this is potentially 
has to do with some imprinting, maybe some epigenetic changes that is, is, is putting them at higher risk of later early metabolic syndrome because of this continuous, you know, whatever it is, 36 weeks or 40 week exposure to metformin in utero. Now that we've tackled the fetal implications, okay, is it uh, a teratogen? No. Uh, could it somehow imprint the child for later adverse issues? Uh, maybe. So these are associations, does not prove causation. So that's an unknown. We'll just leave that to not enough evidence, but it's, but it's something that is concerning, okay? So that's, that's the, the little shady part there. But now that we covered the fetal thing, let's take a look at maternal or overall pregnancy advantages of using this medication. Remember, most of that data shows that it helps with early spontaneous miscarriage prevention. But other things like hypertension or even gestational diabetes uh, or uh, even controlling uh, fetal weight does not seem to be there. So as we get ready to wrap up this, this, uh, this, this summary data here from ASRM, let me just read you exactly what ASRM has to say about this from their new publication. Again, came out just ahead of print uh, in mid-August of 2023 and hasn't formally come out yet. And it's going to come out in those three articles that we referenced. Let me just read you exactly what ASRM says about continuing metformin in pregnancy in these patients. You know, having had a wonderful opportunity and, and still on it now to sit with uh, the OB Obstetric Care Consensus Committee from ACOG, I can tell you, man, these bulletins that come out from these professional societies, it's a chore. And, and the amount of dedication and the commitment that uh, people who sit on these committees have to, to get this thing evidence-based is legit. And the data really has to have a predominance of of, of the burden of evidence has to be there, a, a predominance of facts or a, a predominance of, of benefit for, the, for a college, a professional society to say, yes, this is legit, all right? So thankfully, the ASRM, the new guidance does mention inositol as part of shared decision-making, and we talked about that in a previous episode because that's a big deal because finally there's some uh, mention and reference to that in their new publication. All to say that it's not like two people said, hey, here's what we're going to say about metformin continuing in pregnancy, and this is how it's going to be. I mean, it really is taking a look at all of the data out there. And one of the pieces that was looked at is is this 2019 systematic review and meta-analysis on this very subject. So this meta-analysis from 2019 came out in uh, diabetology and metabolic syndrome in 2019 in July, and it's a systematic review, meta-analysis, and meta-regression of taking metformin therapy before conception and then continuing it throughout pregnancy, okay? And once you read a lot of the, all this data, which is it's a lot of work, it's a great publication, it, it all comes down to what we've said before many times before in two, three words shared decision making because <laughs> uh, they're like hey look there's a lot of trials out there but some of these have internal biases some of those aren't well controlled there's a lot of factors that go into uh, PCOS as, as a syndrome and so the take home from this 2019 meta-analysis is look we need well-designed RCTs it's shared decision making uh, we know that there's some potential benefits but a lot of things we just don't know and then there's the long-term fetal consequences so that same message is is almost identically repeated in the ASRM message now spring forward to 2023. 
So my point in bringing up this 2019 systematic review, meta-analysis, and meta-regression is that it's not ASRM by themselves. They're doing uh, the best that they can with the data given, uh, and there's these huge pockets of data that now get synthesized, synthesized and go into something like this new uh, committee guidance. ASRM's updated PCOS guidance discussing continuation of metformin in pregnancy in women with PCOS states the following. Healthcare professionals should be aware that metformin in pregnant women with PCOS has not been shown to prevent gestational diabetes, late miscarriage defined as greater than 12 weeks. Now let's stop there for a minute. Notice it says has not been shown to prevent late miscarriage. Doesn't say anything about early miscarriage. Isn't that interesting? So that's an inferred issue there because they have nothing to say here about early loss. They do make the distinction here that the data is not clear regarding late miscarriage. They go on to say, again, the data has not been shown that continuing metformin in pregnancy in these patients prevents hypertension in pregnancy, preeclampsia, does not prevent macrosomia or birth weight greater than 4,000 grams, although metformin could be considered in a very special circumstance. And here it is, and here's the big clinical pearl. Outside of the spontaneous AB risk issue, there is data that metformin use in PCOS patients can reduce the risk, here it is, of preterm birth. And ASRM does mention that specifically, quote, Metformin could be considered in some circumstances, that is, risk for preterm birth, to reduce preterm delivery and limit excess gestational weight gain in pregnant women with PCOS, end quote. So now that we get towards the end, the three main clinical pearls of the potential benefit of using metformin all throughout gestation, which again, it would only be for one of these three issues, is for the potential for preterm birth prevention, second, to reduce uh, maternal gestational weight gain, and then the third is to reduce early spontaneous abortion. That's it. The the data is very fuzzy on gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, fetal birth weight, uh, gestational hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, but that's the three conditions. Ready? Potential to reduce preterm birth in these patients, reduce gestational weight gain, and possibly reduce early spontaneous loss. That is it. But having said that, the cautionary note that ASRM states is something that we've just talked about is, quote, women should be counseled that the consequences of metformin exposure on long-term outcome health remain unclear, and there is a suggestion of increased childhood weight, although causality is not certain. So there you go. So is there a potential to increase use all throughout pregnancy? Yes, the potential is there, but it all goes back to shared decision making. This is why it's so important to not address these issues during the pregnancy, but ideally try to address it before they get pregnant so that patients with the metabolic syndrome of PCOS can get that tighter under control to try to reduce some of these issues, all right? But if you're ever asked, should we continue metformin without pregnancy? The short answer is shared decision-making. And the three main benefits that seem to be data-driven here, it's evidence-based, are to reduce spontaneous early loss. Second, reduce maternal weight gain, which, again, why do we leave a medication to do that when there's healthy eating and, and education that can do that? And then third is, is the preterm birth reduction in PCOS patients. Now that we have no FDA-approved medication for preterm birth prevention, metformin for that specific indication 
may be considered. So I want to be very clear. It's not that it's a, it's a solid recommendation. It's may be considered. So in patients who have two previous births that are preterm and has known PCOS, that's a patient that potentially the benefit of continuing medication all throughout pregnancy may be outweighed here over any potential risk. But again, it goes into shared decision-making. Uh, or the other thing is to do a hybrid. Hey, you've got two preterm births, you have PCOS, we're going to continue metformin until, say, uh, you do your diabetes test, and once you pass that, then we're going to stop. That's the other option. You see, it's not all or none. There's all these different options and flavors here that can be done because we just don't have any uh, evidence to say this is the only way to do it. And I like that approach. So if a patient has two previous preterm births or just one very early preterm birth and they have PCOS, continuing until they get uh, a negative uh, GDM test, and then stopping it is valid. The problem is if they can, if they fail the GDM test, then of course you got to keep them on it and adjust to treat that medical condition. Boy, wasn't that a good topic? I mean, not to be biased or anything, but <laughs> this all started because Elise asked that question. See what you did? See, are you happy with yourself now? <laughs> no, it's great. That's a, such a great clinical question. And we went right to work. We started looking at all the data and, and perfect timing. I mean, it was like the script was written because this is coming off. That question was coming off right at the heels of ASRM's new publication. Uh, and, and it fits real nice uh, into our recent episode that we talked about with inositol. That is also part of shared decision making. But you talk about low risk and potential for benefit. My inositol definitely fits that criteria. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.